Good afternoon. Welcome to Colton Court, a weekly look at the world of sports, things that happen both on and off the, the courts and playing fields. My name is Gerald Colton. I'm your host, longtime sports agent, along with my co-host and proprietor of our new location, six-time Pro Bowler, four-time first-team All-Pro, one-time second-team, 11-year guard for the Saints, one for the Packers, Jari Evans. Welcome, Ja. Hey, what up, man? We're back. Ja, we're back, but we're also in our new location. We're sitting here in Somo Sophie. Sophie, I'm sorry, I always mispronounce that. Sophie, Somos, you're right. You had it right the first time. Somo Sophie. <laughs> you changed it then on me. No. <laughs> I thought you were always correcting me. There was anyway. So, yeah. so, so we're in the living room. We call it the living room. We are at 13th and Packer Avenue, <clears throat> just a block or so from the stadium, a block where the where the Phillies are about to kick off the season on Thursday, and we're going to be joined in a little while by Phillies scouting director uh, Rob Holiday, amateur scouting director, and he's going to. Inf- fill us in on what's went doing down in Clearwater and what we can look forward in the Philly season, a bunch of other things. We are also going to be here weekly. So come join us and see us live and fill us in questions and come meet my partner, Jerry Evans. So anyway, jo, as yeah. always, there's so much going on in the world of sports. I want to start off with something we've been talking about certainly all season long as we come down to the home stretch of the NBA season, the Sixers. In the last week since our last show, the Sixers had one home game. It was against the Boston Celtics, their dreaded rival, and somebody they've stumbled a lot against and have lost 18 in the last 22 games, including being knocked out of the playoffs last year in five games. They beat the Celtics last Wednesday night at the, at the Wells Fargo Finally. Center. Finally. It was a, it was a finally, and it was a huge win for them. It's sort of a, maybe that, that statement game, get over the hump game. But at the time, at, during the game itself, a bunch of interesting things happened. And that was the Sixers had a really awful first half. They were down 11 and a half, kind of lifeless. Had the ball to start the third quarter. Had an awful first possession. Celtics in total control of that game with 11 minutes to go in the third quarter. Their guard, Marcus Smart, kind yeah. of lost his mind. He felt he got elbowed by Joel Embiid, which he, which he probably did. But then he shoved Joel Embiid from behind, knocked him down, got himself thrown out of the game, egged on the crowd, totally changed the game, changed the momentum. And, and to me, was the seminal point in that game. And, and maybe, who knows, what could ultimately be the Sixers' season, especially if they play, play the Celtics again. And I just I want to ask you a question about that because, you know, his name's Marcus Smart. That sure wasn't so smart. And as he's <laughs> leaving the game after getting thrown out, I couldn't believe how he's, like, waving to the crowd and egging them on. He just cost <clears> his <throat> team so, so much. And there were so many things that he could have been useful for down the stretch. He changes their rotation. He's a good defensive player. And they took advantage of Kyrie Irving down the stretch. I just couldn't believe a player would do that. You, If he's your teammate, what are you thinking? Uh, I think he just... Got out of character, honestly. Um, <clears throat> at one point, I, I did think he was actually trying to hurt him because I think uh, he just came back from a back injury and where he shoved him at. I thought he should have, should have been suspended. Uh, uh, he missed the next game too, right? When you get kicked out of the one. He, got he, fi- he only got a fine, like $50,000 fine, no okay. suspension. Well, see, to those guys, it, it's worth it for those guys to do something like that. So, uh, I mean, I think it was a dirty hit. Obviously, it's a rivalry thing going on with uh, both teams. Um, but uh, – it was definitely a dirty cheap shot that he took, and I, and I think he was trying to hurt him, get him, you know, get his back uh, aggravated again. To me, it's not worth it, and, and to me, he hurt his team. And if I'm his coach, if I'm his teammate, I'm pretty disappointed in my teammate doing that in a game. The, the Sixers had zero life at the time. I don't think he, he expected like to get kicked out of the game for it. 
Maybe. I just think that he was trying to, to hurt him. And but, his, his reaction wasn't real good yeah. and real classy and, and whatever. Uh, look, you you know that, what I feel about the Boston The Boston's been having problems, man. They've been having problems the last they've couple weeks. They've, and, well, they've uh, had problems since the All-Star game. I think yeah. they're 6-10 and 10 since the All-Star break and have really struggled. Um, but the Sixers have been somebody that they've had their number and right. to really let something like that potentially turn around a game and give a team a lot of belief that they can beat you is not generally a smart thing. All right, the other things that happened with the Sixers this week were that uh, they lost two games to teams that they should probably beat. That's on the road against Atlanta, and then last night they were down in Orlando, and Ben Simmons sat out, and, and they lost. Not great signs as you come down the home stretch. You've been predicting the Sixers are going to get to second place in the East. They're not going to get to get there with those kind of stumbles, but they also have to solidify their at least third place so they get the home, field advantage, home court advantage in the first round, probably play Detroit as things are stacking up now, and then head to the second round and probably play Toronto if things stay the way they are. They sure didn't want to play the Boston Celtics in the first <laughs> round, and, and you don't want to slide because they're only two games up on Indiana. But yeah. they, they really, they, they've only been together a short time since the trades of acquiring Tobias Harris from the Clippers and a bunch of other parts. And you'd like to see them meld and play a little bit better as we come down the stretch. Uh, I don't disagree with you, uh, but I still think they. They got a, you know, short chance to finish second. But like you said, it's kind of a long shot with those losses. I didn't expect them to lose to those those bottom teams like that. And, and that's something that they've been struggling with. They they play down to their competition. They don't they don't play with the same uh, aggressiveness and the same tenacity as they play when they play against the playoff teams or the big teams. And um, that's something that they have to get over. That's not that's not good for a professional. Uh, athletes, but these guys are young, and uh, you're seeing it when they play these 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 the bottom of the list teams. They their youth come out and they don't they don't play with the cohesiveness that they play with and the sense of urgency that they play with with these uh the better teams. So that's something that they gotta change and they gotta start gelling playoff time comes. And uh, I think it's a rotation thing, man. I think they just haven't had enough time together. And that's something we'll have to figure out real quickly. Well, we'll see. They haven't been getting great contributions from the bench. They sat Ben last last night. And you know what a big fan I am of Ben. And I think he is underappreciated. And I think you see how much they miss him when he's not on the court. Yeah. But obviously, the success down the stretch and through the playoffs will be predicated on everybody being there, everybody being healthy, and certainly Ben and Joel leading them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think who they play matters. Because when you're in the playoffs, you're in the mode to win, no matter who your opponent is. You're going to have to play somebody good eventually anyway. So if you're into that mind frame, like, hey, we want to get an easier opponent during the first round so we can match up during the second round. Now, home field advantage is one thing. But to me, in basketball, I don't really see a home field advantage as much. You've got to be kidding. But not <laughs> it's, really. I mean, it's, it's huge in the playoffs. I mean, I don't, you, I don't because see you, Because you get that extra what game. What is it, 2-2, two, 1-1-1, two, one, one, right? Yeah, oh, but you get – except in the finals when they go 2-3-2. 2-3-2, two, two, but, two, two, but, right. Although, no, they might have switched that back because they didn't – because that, that created they – did, they did switch that back. So it's 2-2, 1-1-1. Two, two, one, one, one. But, but uh, you know, having that seventh game at home is enormous, enormous. Yes, game seven, yes. I mean, so, so but that, by the time you get to game seven, it's do or die anyway. I mean, whether you're home or not. So, I mean, that's why – that's why I'm saying it's kind of maybe just because in my profession in football, it was a little bit different. You, you got to win every game where it's, you don't, it's not like a, a best out of three or best out of five right. or best out of seven scenarios. Right. So we never had that mentality. That's, you know, that's one reason why I say that. But 
no matter if they got to play Boston, they got to play Boston. Like, if you're not prepared to beat anybody in the playoffs, then you're not prepared to win a championship. So I think you make a very good point with that. And, and no matter what, the road's tough. And yeah, exactly. If they avoid Boston in the first round, but still have to play Toronto, Milwaukee, they're going to have to beat some beasts anyway. And you're going to get everybody a shot anyway. But, but John, the other, the other part is there's sort of like a <laughs> foregone conclusion in a lot of people's minds that the Golden State Warriors are going to win their fourth championship in five years. And I just don't see it that way. And we saw something even last night where Nurkic, a really good player for the Portland Trailblazers, who are having a really nice season again, as they usually do out there. They're they're way tucked away in the northwest of the country, and people don't really often take notice of them. But they're uh, fourth overall in the West, yep. and they lost a really good player with one of those gruesome leg injuries. Yeah. But that, that's the kind of stuff that can change everything. I, I'm always so sorry to see any injury, um, and that probably curtails their season. You never know who's going to have them. So the key is staying healthy. The key is putting yourself in, in the game. The Sixers are certainly, they've already clinched a playoff spot and they should find themselves in the Eastern Conference semifinals and then it's going to be up to them what they can do from there. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, as far as the West concerned, I mean, I think everybody puts the Warriors up there just because they have some of the best shooters on their team. And Listen, they're unbelievable, and what they've what they've sustained for five years is incredible. Yeah, and when those guys get hot, it's hard to you know take them off their spot. But I mean, I think there's some teams in the West that can change the pace of the game to where it's not dictated to just an outside game. I think the uh, you know the Spurs can do that. They have. You know, uh, vets that know how to do that. OKC is also good too. I, I think um, Golden State is going to struggle in the playoffs, but they're they're one of the top teams on the West side, and uh, we'll see what happens. I think it's going to be, it's not going to be so clear cut as the last three or four years. We'll see. I mean, Houston came really close to knocking them off yeah, last year. They had they them did. down three to two in the conference finals. Right. So, so they they came very close, and they'll be a threat. Denver is tied with yeah, them. Houston's, Houston's definitely going to be a threat for sure. And yeah. Denver's tied with the, with them with the overall best record. So yeah. they, they've got a shot to get that home court advantage. You don't think is very important. But I'm sure Denver <laughs> would love to get I don't, it. I don't think Denver got enough. Even though they've been playing well this season, I just don't think they got enough. But well, we'll see. Anyway, obviously the bounce of power uh, shifts at times. Denver hasn't been in the equation for a while yeah. to be considered. And so I can understand why you don't think maybe this first time around with this bunch yeah, they're getting there. But, exactly. they've, but they've had a really, really good season. They have. They have. Uh, so let's, let's turn quickly um, to some other sports before we bring on Rob Holiday to join us and, and go baseball. But there are a few things that have happened in the world of baseball this offseason that, that really are noteworthy to me, as well as – juxtaposed against the NFL free agency that's going on. And I see how my mind has been so jaded and changed by stuff, and especially as someone who's made a living being a sports agent, mostly representing NFL players. There's a really great player named Paul Goldschmidt for the, who got traded this year and is now with the St. Louis Cardinals. And the Cardinals, and, and he's, he's been with Arizona for his career, put up great numbers in the MVP equation every year. Maybe doesn't get a whole lot of notice out this way, but a terrific, terrific player. And got traded to St. Louis, and St. Louis just extended him. They gave him a, uh, it was a five-year, $130 million contract. So that's a 26 average per year. And I looked at that contract, and I said, wow, they got to steal the club. <laughs> that's how much I've gotten jaded, because on the same day, at the same time, Justin Houston, a star linebacker in the NFL, who had been let go by Kansas City because his Cap number's too big. Signed to Indianapolis for a two-year, $24 million deal. So he's $12 million a year for two years. That's not guaranteed. Goldschmidt's $26 million a year for five years. And I'm like, wow, this club got a steal on Goldschmidt. And great deal for the player in Houston. I can't believe I've gotten that jaded that these these baseball numbers now have really made me desensitized. <laughs> I mean, they, they just play more games. Uh 
And uh, they don't have a salary cap, so I guess they can, you know, just throw those numbers around. But you know how the, <laughs> you know how the football world is. Once you once you get over thirty, now they just have that so ingrained in people's mind that you can't play anymore. And baseball is not that way. Well, it's across the board, though. It's a whole the get whole guaranteed salary portion of it, and a whole bunch of other things. Yeah, that too. But, yeah. but by the same time, like, because you know, we talked about last week NFL free agency how there were about two point one billion dollars worth of contracts that have gone so far in NFL free agency, about half of that being guaranteed. So let's look at, we have Trouch signed 12 years, $430 million. Right. Harper signed here in Philadelphia for 13 years, $330 million. Machado signed for $300 million. Between the three of them, the, just so the I, three of them is a billion dollars just about between them. Throwing Goldschmidt's 130, throwing DeGrom just signed for 137. These guys alone have the same guarantee, those five guys, that the entire NFL free agency class got. Listen, you got to <laughs> give a call to your NFL Players Association because they are just not right. handling it the way these other guys are in the other sports. You got to put a bat in the ball in the kid's hands. <laughs> That's and, always where you look at it. And, uh, and it's a lot safer. For the most part, um, not that there's not risk about, but but the um, the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about real quickly before we we bring in Rob was Rob Gronkowski retired from football, yeah. and and it's rare when an NFL player who still is wanted by his club, still under contract, still can do it, gets to walk away on his own terms. We talked about Max Unger, your former teammate in New Orleans last week, who walked away as the center of that line and, and could have continued on, had a year left on, the, on his contract. Right. And good, good for Max. Gronk's doing it. Gronk's that kind of guy who can step off the field and immediately into a broadcast booth and pretty much anything he wants to do. But um, and <laughs> Gronk listen, in the booth? Nah. Well, well look, I, I, maybe not, but there's an opening in that Monday night booth because thankfully Jason Winton went back to play. Yeah, because he was horrible. <laughs> yeah, he was so bad. And we don't have to listen to him, and, and every, no one else does. I, you know, I, I said that. He got to redeem he, himself by going back to play a ball. That's Eagles fans hate Dallas so much, and Jason Winton getting back oh. on the Cowboys makes them a better team but they'd still rather have him playing for the Cowboys and have to listen to him but I could see Gronkowski in that broadcast booth I, I can't I can't uh, He's I could see him for like not a whole game maybe for <laughs> <laughs> maybe for halftime or right before half or something like that but uh Gronk's a, he likes to party, like to have a good time, and uh, he's had a great career. He's oh. one of those tight ends that, you know, one of those, well, not tight ends, but one of those players that are able to leave on top. After There's no the question. A great career for him. Probably a Hall of Famer. Uh, all-time leading touchdown receiver for the Patriots. Three Super Bowls. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, he's a guy to me that for the most part has been the most most athletic receiver for for the Patriots, and he's been playing the tight uh, end position. Yeah. I don't want to take away from Edelman or the other guys, but I, th I think Gronk's probably the best athlete of their receiving court and has been for a few years well maybe since randy left yeah, but. i'm not taking it from randy moss <laughs> but, and i'm not comparing yeah, to randy I mean, moss that way no no i don't understand what you're saying i mean he's listen tom brady has done the most with the least out of any of the qbs that have won championships and um and gronk has played a big part of that and uh but i think his the thing that people don't really see is what he does in the run game also he's one of those big guys that that really get after in the run game and um you know, he's just taken so many hits over the years, and uh, it, they add up. And uh, to see him just go out it, the way he wanted to go out and things of that nature is, uh, is awesome. Maybe Martellus comes back and plays with his brother. Now since his brother's there, I've heard things of that of that nature. But uh, but Gronk, is, he's definitely one of those guys that uh, was definitely taking the seam routes right up the middle and couldn't be guarded by, you know, a linebacker, and the safety just wasn't big enough to get around him. All right, last note before we go to Rob and, and, and complete the baseball, but it's on the baseball note, and he might want to comment. But Jason Grom, last year's 
Cy Young Award winner for the New York Mets. And the Cy Young Award has changed over the years because it used to go a lot by one loss record. And he was even uh, 500 or under 500 pitcher, but was a dominant, dominant pitcher last year. Guys don't finish what they start anymore, so he couldn't be held accountable playing for a, pitching for a pretty bad team. But he signed a, a contract, a five-year, $137.5 million contract. So that's... Uh, 27.5 per year average. 27.5. We take these things in stride, as I said mm-hmm. a few minutes ago. But the New York Mets over this offseason hired a new general manager, Brody Van Wagenen. And, and myself as an agent, hats off to Brody, to Brody because he's a former agent. But one of his clients that he represented at CAA was Jason DeGrom. So okay. in his first major, major act... For the New York Mets, he signed his former client, client. who was still represented yeah. by his old agency, to this contract. Now, everybody in New York is thrilled that they're keeping this guy. The contract is not really out of whack, but it's really bizarre to me. And, it you is. know, just a, an interesting potential conflict <clears throat> and an awfully big, big agent fee that. <laughs> sure is. So is he still? Well, he can't be his agent anymore. He's not his agent. He's a guy who supposedly but, negotiated against him. But it's it's a really. I hope he didn't have an agent. He, he did. He, his, he, still, he still had his old agency that he used to work for just a few months ago was who he was doing the deal with. It's just it's one of those things ripe with conflict and nobody really you know no real harm done. But it's just one of those interesting things that I like to. We were kind talking of about this uh, not too long ago. I mean, cut you off about the guy who got the GM job in the NFL who was a uh, commentator or like Mayock Mayock yes exactly and he and he got the job and it's like man it, uh, I don't know it's just I guess it's it, when the owners are writing the checks I guess they could choose the GMs right well anyway they uh, sure they can it's just it's just it's just a funny thing to a funny nuance to sort of throw out there anyway it's a good time to bring in today's guest live in Somo for us and and working just around the corner and excited for opening day back from Clearwater is the director of amateur scouting for the Philadelphia Phillies longtime director Rob Holiday. Rob thanks for joining us oh thanks a lot Gerald first of all you and Jari you have great chemistry you guys do a great job together thank you thank you you're in studio can you tell us apart <laughs> uh, Jari's a little taller <laughs> absolutely um uh, Rob, let's go to, I want to get into Phillies because we are just two days away from the opening of baseball season. It's nice outside. You know, it's like the baseball gods know it's time to, time to change the weather and, and let's get baseball season away. But you're just back from Clearwater, Florida. You were down at spring training. Talk to me about what you saw down there and how excited you are for the opening of the season. Uh, well, first of all, very excited. I mean, it's been such an exciting off season, so I was really looking forward to going down there. Um, but, you know, as you said, I, I'm, uh, I'm a director of amateur scouting administration. I'm on the amateur side. So I spent most of my time at the minor league complex meeting with our scouts, with our international scouts who are in. And so we had a lot of meetings. So I did get to spend some time over watching a big league club. And it's uh, right now it's a it's a great atmosphere, very positive. Uh, it's a. Uh, it seems to be a change from in the past when we know that we were kind of an up-and-coming team where I think the guys are feeling like, hey, we're ready to get going. We're ready to be up on top. And uh, it's just a little bit of a different feeling down there, but in a very positive way. Rob, you've been with the Phillies for how long? 31 years. <sighs> wow. <laughs> wow, you started young. <laughs> well, anyway, so you, so you originally got here. That was 1988, if my math works? 87, yeah. 87, okay. And... Um, 
the Phillies won their first World Series in 1980. You arrived a little bit after that, a little bit at the end of an era. Mike Schmidt, I guess, was just leaving. And you went through some rough times, and it's, it's cyclical, but you were also here for the Golden Era, uh, which, which culminated with the World Series in, 19, in 2008, coming close again, going to the Series in 2009. Um, but the last few years have been really tough. It's got to feel great to now be in the conversation, the dialogue as somebody who can really contend this year. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you, it does go in cycles. And I've been here long enough to have, to have ridden a couple of these waves. And, and you could kind of see it at the beginning. Like, we, we knew that we were starting to build a good nucleus of young players in the, um, uh, in the minor league system that we hoped would be able to get us the pieces we needed or develop into uh, the talent that we need to be contenders. So you could see it coming over the last few years. And, uh, you know, you just kind of have to ride it out and, and, and be patient. And, uh, and we're all glad it's here. How many more requests for tickets are you getting this year than last? As I've been sitting here with you, I've gotten several just in the last <laughs> few minutes. Taylor, leave him alone. <laughs> Our producer, Taylor, said next to him. No, he, he did not ask yet. <laughs> but all right, so I want to go through this club and, and talk to you also about the role that you've been able to participate in and watch this team grow. Opening day starters going to be your ace, Aaron Nola, drafted by the Phillies. And you've got a whole bunch of homegrown guys that are now really playing significant roles. Mikel Franco's been around a while, and Hoskins at first base, of course. Um, you've got Oduble, who apparently is having a good spring, and a couple other pieces. Talk to me, though, about what you see for this club. The, to me, the scary part from the outside is your rotation, just because some of these guys have not completely proven it, but a lot of these guys are the homegrown. You've got, at the top of the rotation, of course, Nola. Jake Arrieta, former Cy Young Award winner himself. Everyone t- is telling me he looks really good down in Clearwater, does he? Oh, he does, yeah. I mean, I think he had a great start yesterday. Uh, that was, you know, his last start before coming up. Was here. that another ticket request you just got on your phone? Yeah, it was my cousin, <laughs> so I'm sure it is, yes. So I'm turning this off right now. Um, but uh, I'm sorry, I forgot your question. No, no so but Arietta, and then but then we go Rob to the to the more unknown quantities, and and that being Pavetta, who I saw throw in '99 when I tuned in, which is unbelievable, and I guess Zach Eflin, who showed some really good signs last year, and Vince Velasquez, who maybe hasn't looked so great, but guys who have really shown some promise. What's your thought on the on the other end of the rotation? Well, I think, as you said, it's not going to be about their physical skills because they all have the physical skills to to be very successful pitchers. I think it's just about their confidence. From what I know of Nick Pavetta, he doesn't lack in confidence. And I think that, that, you know, he's ready to to have a big year. And Zach Eflin, he got back up to the big leagues last year. He's got great stuff. He's also very confident. And Vince, you know, Vince – had some ups and downs last year, but he had enough ups that I think he's got enough to build on. He's got a great arm and good stuff. So, and I think having that competition between them, I think will help as well. So, um, so I think it's just going to be a matter of they have another year under their belt. This is a new year. They get to come into spring training uh, with more experience than they had before. And, you know, they just have to get their feet wet and just get in there and do it. I was sorry to see that Jared Eikhoff, I guess, wasn't throwing green, got sent down, and he's, he's battled some injuries, a kid I really like and hope for. But are there, are there any other pitchers on the horizon that you see, obviously, over the course of 162 games? You're going to have some other guys starting for you at various times, no matter what. Any other kids you see coming in playing a role? Well, I like, uh, you know, Drew Anderson, he's been kind of, you know, knocking on the, on the door a little bit, and 
Um, and, and I mean, you heard it here first. I think, you know, uh, Jared Eikhoff is going to play a role this year. I at some so. point. I love the kid. Some point, you know, I, um, you know, hopefully it's not because of an injury, but at some point he'll be called upon. And I think he's going to bounce back. I mean, he's had a couple of, of really rough years and he's worked very hard and his stuff is too good and he's too good a competitor not to help this team and I think he will at some point but I think those are the kind of the next two on the horizon and um, and that's good you know we have a lot of volume and and I think that that creates competition and you just you know just have to get out there and see who steps up well you need that volume and I've watched baseball has stayed Pat in so many ways over the years that have amazed me since the time I began watching it, it, so many things have stayed the same and one of them is the 25 man roster despite the fact that pitching has gone into specialties and so many things have changed and you really got to have a lot of guys so, so much so that you've kind of limited the bench players you have and you're limited to basically four I was glad to see in some of the rule changes that are going to go into effect for 2020 that they're finally adding another roster spot that I can't believe has taken so long to add well, I, and I don't know why it took this long, but you're absolutely right with the way that the game has changed. And, and that, that's always the challenge every year is how many pitches we're going to break camp with. And you count how many games you have early to see how many you can get by with at first. And then you can make a change and, and you have to have versatile bench players that can play multiple positions and, and do a lot of things to help, um, you know, bridge that gap. So you're right. Pitching has become uh, so specialized. It's not like, uh, you know, years back where the starting pitcher took the ball and he was going to finish the game or you're going to get to the eighth inning. You know, it was a uh, it was a uh, bragging rights to how many complete games uh, that a pitcher would have. And 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 now it's just uh, it's just done differently. And you have to have all those pitchers, you know, to, to lock down each inning to uh, to help get you the, the W's you need. So talk to me about your bullpen because you made some changes there um, and people are pretty excited about the bullpen. And obviously you need a lot of pitchers. And it seems like your manager, your club, your manager Gabe Kapler and the club in general, maybe have a different concept of the usage of the bullpen than some other clubs do. Well, you know, and, and I don't know about that. I think that a, a lot of the ways that, that the, the roster was handled uh, last year was based on the, the, the talent that, uh, you know, the manager thought we had. And I think maybe this year might be different. You know, I think adding uh, David Robert, Robertson to the pen is a big solidifier because that'll push people into roles that are maybe more suited for them you know young pitchers like uh, um, um, Sir Anthony and and put them in a position where they can uh, where it's a little less pressure for them you know and Pat Neshack had a great spring and you know you can push him back and get those veteran guys that I think can can take up some of these tough innings and, and bring the younger guys along a little slowly and and ease them in and give them their experience so then down the stretch they'll be better prepared so it, I think the bullpen can be a strong point for this club this year you know Rob it's been interesting to me as we talked a second ago about the change in the, the number of pitchers you carry and the specialization over the years. And it's been amazing to me that we are now in year, I guess, about 45 of the designated hitter. One of the really probably the most radical rule change to baseball that I can remember of my lifetime when in the American League, when Ron Bloomberg being the first one ever for the New York Yankees, and I remember we took the plate in 74, first, you know, you actually didn't have pitchers batting. And the National League has steadfastly held to the pitchers batting, but they 
limit the versatility you have of maneuverability and pinch hitting because of the roster changes. So I'm glad they're finally adding another guy for a lot of reasons, and, and we'll see that come down the pike next year. All right, so we, that's the pitching staff. Your lineup is really exciting, and, and uh, you get to, to really put a solid, consistent day-to-day lineup, which you haven't been able to do in a while. But um, talk to me. Obviously, no matter what you do, when you add Bryce Harper and you're penciling that left-handed bat somewhere, three, four hitter every day, what a difference that makes. Oh, it's just a huge difference. I mean, it's such a big hump for the opposing pitcher to get by. And, I mean, and everyone, you know, we're focused on Bryce, and, and we should be, but... I mean, it shouldn't be understated the difference that I think these other guys are going to make. I mean, McCutcheon, a former MVP, and what he's going to bring, what he's already bringing with his leadership, and he's such a high-quality person. And you expect him at the top of the lineup, right? Well, that, that's the way it looks for right now. That, I think that's the way it's going to start out. And I think, um, you know, I'm sure things can change as they go. But right now you have you have him there, and you've got Segura, who's a 300 hitter, who – you know, puts the bat on the ball, hit behind the runners and do all those things. And will and, give you more solid defense than that position gave last year, right? Yeah, he's a good defender. And, uh, you know, last year was a year of just kind of, you know, piecing things together. And um, Scott Kingery did a great job of moving over from second base and, and playing there. It wasn't necessarily his natural position, but he did a great job. And he proved that he can play there. And, you know, Segura's got more experience at that position. And um, so you have him there and, I mean, real Muto. I mean, come on. I mean, this is that's how a good he good, to you. I mean, he he's the real deal. Like they describe him as the best catcher in baseball. I couldn't dispute that. I mean, so arguably you got the best right fielder. Hopefully, mm-hmm. hopefully you got the best catcher. Reese Hoskins is really exciting as to where he stands in his career. You got a former MVP and left. It's this this team's super exciting. Well, and the the other thing to to. To make note of, I mean, Reese is moving from left field, which is an unfamiliar position, and he did. He wasn't happy there. Well, and you know, and and he's the type of guy that'll do whatever you ask him to do. I mean, that's what he is. And and I think anyone who's human and you're playing out of position, it's got to affect you a little bit on the on the other side, you know, offensively. And uh, so he's back at his natural position, and I think that may help him. And uh, and he's got you know great hitters in front of him and behind him, and. Uh, I think he's, you know, he's going to have a not just Let's a great go. year. He's going to have a great career. I can't wait for three o'clock on Thursday, Rob, and <laughs> and uh, and then there's the, the next 161 after that. <laughs> so many games, so many games. Rob, I'm looking at this. I, I never realized how many pitchers are on the roster for on the ball club. But and as we sit here and we see the the Holiday Inn being knocked down, and we see that outfield that's that's uh, that's great, and we know how much is the hitters' park. Is it tough? bringing in the right pitching to match this new park that we have, you know, over the last, what, 10 years? You know, that's, it's an interesting question because if you look back, the top pitchers did want to come here. I mean, you know, Halliday and, and Lee and, and yes, it can certainly be a hitter's park. It can be. But there's also days the ball just does not travel. I think it's, it's some of it depends upon the weather. But, yes, there, there are some hitter-friendly parks. But it, it hasn't seemed to deter pitchers from, from wanting to come here. Gotcha. At least not not that I know of. And, you know, the good pitchers, you just keep the ball down. Yeah. Put it on the ground and you'll be all right. And wanting to stay. Fortunately, you locked up Aaron Nola for a few more years. And real exci- start of a real exciting career there. Third in the Cy Young last year. You know, I like that last name, Nola. <laughs> you actually, his travel agent is actually related to Aaron yeah. Nola from down in, in New Orleans. Yep. And he's from that down that way. It's a fitting name. Rob, I want to talk to you about 
your job um, and the amateur scouting. Baseball works differently than every other sport. We're a month away from the NFL draft, and and it is an amateur draft also. Um, and the other sports really are amateur drafts, although basketball and hockey can draft Europeans, guys who play overseas are professional. But baseball works so, so, so differently. And, and I don't think people really understand how it works. And your draft is every June. But when you talk amateur in baseball, you're talking different levels. High school, junior college, college and explain what you have to do and how much you have to coordinate and how vast the territory is you know in, in basketball job it's a finite pool you know you're looking at it everybody's required to go to college so you, so you're you're looking at everybody in the ncaa and then the the, the top level european players in baseball they're all over the place and we're we're talking about of course in north america and there's also overseas and and Dominican and, and Latin America in baseball. So it's so complicated. There's so many people in so many rounds. Talk a little bit about your job and what you have to coordinate. Sure. But the, the way that we're set up in the amateur staff, and, and particularly I'm, what I'm referring to as the uh, domestic and for the draft, is we have, uh, we have 18 uh, what we call uh, area scouts. So we have the country divide, divide up into 18 different territories, and each one of them is full-time covers their particular area. So for example, this particular area, uh, Connor Betbees is our scout here. He lives right here in Philadelphia. So he has pretty much all of, of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, uh, down to uh, DC and Virginia. So that's kind of give you an idea of a territory. And within those territories, they'll have um, um, independent contractor scouts that might help them there just to kind of dig out some names and associate scouts that will help them identify names. Anybody so, in particular in this region? Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's quite a few. <laughs> um, there's a kid named Tucker. Who yeah, there's a kid named a Tucker, <laughs> Tucker Colton. Yes, uh, uh, he helps us out. Um, so we have the 18 uh, area supervisors, and then we have five regional supervisors. So those 18 territories are divided into five regions. Then we have some national coordinators. So what will happen is if there's a, a player that the area supervisor likes, he'll call in the regional supervisor. They'll come in and see him. Then the national supervisors will come in and see him. Our scouting directors and some of our special assistants to the scouting department will see him. So we'll try to get to see them on multiple looks. So the the... The main work is done with these area supervisors. They have to identify all the players in their territories so that we know who's there. They turn in reports to them. It goes into our central database. Then we can all look at it and determine, you know, how high we are on that player. The more looks we get, then, the, you know, then the, the rankings can go up or down from there. So it's called... It's called a cross-checking system, and that's basically what it is. We like to get as many looks as we can through as many layers as we can. We even have Pat Gillick that goes out, sees a lot of players with us. He loves it, this amateur uh, scout, and we have some of the guys that cover the professional uh, um, coverage for us. They'll come out and help us with some of the amateur scouting as well. So, so that begins really the summer before the draft. So as soon as the draft is over in June, they go out and look at all those summer leagues, and those showcases, because you get to see a lot of players at a time and start to develop your list. And then you kind of, the guys will kind of know where to go in the spring to kind of to track them down, because the spring season can be short, as you know, with the weather and depending upon where you are. So we start developing names when they're, you know, 15, 16 years old. You see them in the summer, and you just kind of track them, and then you come up with your list. And, and that's how the spring goes. So then once we get closer to the draft, we'll meet on it and we'll have our pre-draft meetings, talk about every player that's on our board. Uh, we, we probably had um, 
1,200 players or so on our draft board. Um, you know, so you have high school, as you said, high school, junior college, and, and four-year college players to deal with. So all over, all different ages and sizes. And the, the other thing I'll say is, and no offense to any other sport, but with baseball scouting, it's particularly a challenge because there's so much projection involved. You have to look at a 17-year-old kid and determine what he's going to be like physically in 10 years. Right. So you try to look at the parents. You try to just look at whatever you can to try to, to determine how they're going to develop. That's what I was going to say. Like That process is so kind of foreign to me because uh, you know we're not even looked at until after college, after a few years of college. But y'all go as young as maybe 15, 13, 14 years old. Like how does that how does that work? Obviously, you don't you don't take them that young, but you're you're uh, able to have rights at at what age are you able to like offer rights to? to well, them? you can't do anything with them until they graduate high school. That's when they're eligible for the draft. The international that's a different subject. Okay, yeah, they, they, they can they can sign as free agents when they turn sixteen. Wow. July second is the start of that each year. So. So, yes, you will see those players when they're 13, 14, and so you kind of know who's who by the time they turn 16 and they're eligible to sign. But here in the States, they have to be a high school senior mm-hmm. or junior college player or completed their third year of a four-year college. Because to once be they set foot on that college campus, they have to complete three years before they're eligible for the draft, right? Correct. Because you've had some interesting things, I know, in the past where you're signing guys, like they're, they're about to step on the campus and you've had negotiations with <laughs> yes, guys who drafted. Yes, that was the old system, and that's what you would do. You would literally, you would draft the player. See, now there's a signing deadline. Right. The signing deadline is in July. And all Before this, this agreement, the signing deadline was whenever the player attended his first college class. So if you drafted a high school player and... So this happened several times. Uh, they would go to the campus, and they would not attend a class while they were still negotiating with us. Oh, like a they, visit or something. Yeah. They, well, no, they would. They would no, be they registered for class. They're starting oh, school, and so the semester be starting. Yes, they just actually didn't physically go into the class. That's right. Wow. Once they physically went into the classroom, the negotiation was over. Oh, wow. So that was kind of their leverage. It's like, okay, he, yeah. he's he's on the campus. <laughs> he's so buying we, books. We better, we, yeah, that's right. He bought books, and uh, so as long as he didn't step into a classroom. So we've actually have signed players, you know, years ago. Oh, yeah, right on on their campus, right before they did that so but now with the signing deadline being in july that stuff gets all wiped away robin your history now 31 years of the phillies any any kids that you took particular interest in there were some of those finds that made it that you're particularly proud of um i know i'm asked this question a lot and i always draw a blank because there's <laughs> there's there's so many players uh well i would say that I would say that one of my one of my favorite was a local kid here, Je- Jesse Biddle, not too long ago. Jesse Biddle and, pitched against Tucker in high school, and he was pitching on TV today. You know, today for the Braves, and um, uh, and just because it was a lot of fun watching him, watching him kind of grow up, and he was local, and and we got to take him in the in the first round, and um, you know, he had a lot of struggles with us, a lot of injuries, and a lot of things that happened to him, and and he just fought through it. He's just such a such a good person and such a uh, an amazing talent uh, that I was just glad to see him, even though he did not make it to the major leagues with the Phillies. I was just glad to see him make it to the major leagues. P- 
period, you know. And I got to see him on the field last year for the first time when the Braves were here. And uh, and he saw me. He came running over. He gave me a big hug. And I'm just really proud of that kid, you know, for um, you know for him getting through all his adversity and making it there. But uh, there's been so many of them, Gerald. I'd have to really think about it. But uh, it, it makes me proud every time one of these guys gets called up to the big leagues because you know I'm I'm there with them at day one you know when they're signing their contract and they're coming in with their with their parents and it's such a big deal and we give them the hat and I take them on a tour of the ballpark and I always make it a point I'll take them you know down to the field and say well look this is where you're going to be playing and we know 90% of them probably aren't going to get there but um, but I always like to uh you know, to get them excited because they're so excited. And then when they get here, they always remember that. So it's always uh, it, it's always a thrill when any of them get here, you know. And, and I always remember the parents and I remember the, the kids. So, uh, so yeah, that's that's the goal. That's the goal is to get them all here. Rob, we've been talking about the big club earlier and, and your little preview for the season that's about to start. But what is the condition right now, the shape of the Phillies minor leagues? Because obviously that's the lifeblood of the club and these are the kids that are going to be here. And and as you embark on the 2019 season, I'm hoping that you're, you know, continue to build what will be another golden era for the Phillies. So tell us about where the minor league system is right now. Well, that is absolutely the utmost important. We always have to have another wave of players coming up. And uh, and our minor leagues are in pretty good shape right now. Uh, we've been fortunate because we've been able to, you know, we've had some high draft picks, you know, because of, of where we finished. Um, you know, the last few years. And we've also had a lot of um, international money, which is really a, a, a big help. And so it seems really a priority of this organization to accumulate that. Absolutely. Whenever, you know, and, and Matt Clintack has done a great job. Anytime we get the opportunity where we can get some more money for international signings, um, we're able to do it. And um, Sal Agustinelli is our, our international uh, director of international scouting, and he is uh, he is as aggressive as you can be, and and he really knows his stuff. And and we have a very good international staff, and and we've been able to have some success because we've we've had the money to compete. And with this new um, you know the latest collective bargaining agreement that we have. You know the the money is kind of slotted. So years ago, you know we all would always know if there was a top player, an international player that we were going to see, if the Yankees or the Red Sox walked in, we knew we were done because they could just outbid us. Well, they can't do that anymore. So now you have a fair shot at at the the top players, and we've spent some money on some on some pretty good players that are you know they're babies, they're young, uh, but they're they're coming up and. You know, and through the draft, we have, have some college players. I mean, you know, Adam Hazley, he's making his way up. And, you know, we've had some, uh, you know, we had the first pick in a draft a couple of years ago, Mickey Moniak, and I just saw him in spring training. And, you know, he was a, a skinny, wiry kid from, from California. And when I saw him in his first game, I was like, well, who's that grown man in center field? You know, I mean, he's, he's put on the right kind of weight and he looks good. And, and, and a lot of times, you know, People will say, oh, well, well, look at his numbers. His numbers aren't great. But we always kind of challenge them. And he's young playing in a league, very young. And so they're playing with older players that have that have been around a little bit longer. And if they hold their own and do well, then we're really happy with that. So we've been happy with the progress of, uh, of these guys coming up. And, you know, we're hopeful there's some more stars coming soon. Well, the success of the Phillies historically, you know, we talked about 1980 and that era that that whole core group was homegrown for the most part. You know, you had Schmidt, Luzinski, Boone, Bo, all the guys who came up. And then you had pieces like a Pete Rose that put you over the top. You're 
2008 champions. You picked most of those guys from Ryan Howard, Chase Utley, Jimmy Rollins, Cole Hamels, and then you know a few little pieces come from the outside. But it's real, really core group. Drew Trees, all, all, all homegrown. So hopefully you've got this core group here that includes now Nola, Reese Hoskins, and Franco, and a whole bunch of others. And then you add a piece like Bryce Harper, and boom, you're over the top. And hopefully that'd be real, real exciting. But you, but the key is that draft job. And building building your 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 club from homegrown. Well, you know it, it is it is great when you can see the players come all the way up through our system that we drafted or signed. But once they put on those red and white pinstripes and it says Phillies, it doesn't matter where they came from if they're homegrown or free agents or whatever. And you know, and oftentimes the um, the homegrown players are you know they're they're used in trades to get the sure. other pieces sure. that we need. So um, you know. They all have got Phillies across the front, so uh, that, that, that's all that matters. Come on, and, you got to be particularly proud of the ones you draft, though. Oh, yeah. Well, only because, you know, we have the history with them, like I said. I mean, you know, when you remember them, when you're meeting with them, you go into their homes and meet their families and that sort of thing. So you do get attached to them because you've known them for so long. But as soon as the new guys come here, you get attached to them, too. Before, what is the uh, average time that it takes a, a young guy to go through the process to get to the to the big leagues from the uh, minors? Well, typically, well, I don't know if there is a typically, but, um, you know, the high school kids, since they're coming up, um, we start them off in the, the, the Gulf Coast League, the lowest level they will. We'll kind of okay. start all of the high school players at the same level. The college players, we'll try to start them at the same level. So what people don't realize is we have, so from the bottom up, we have two low-level A clubs in the, the Gulf Coast League. We have a Phillies East and a Phillies West. The next step up is Williamsport, which is where we kind of start our, our um, college players. Yep. Then we have the Lakewood Blue Claws, which is gen- generally for players that have been around for a year or two. And then we have the Clearwater Threshers. That's the highest level of A-ball. So there's four levels of A-ball. And then that's a huge jump to double-A Redding. And then AAA, you know, uh, in the Lehigh Valley. So typically a high school player is going to spend probably two years in the Gulf Coast League sometimes, a year or two. And then they'll make their way up to Williamsport or Lakewood in year two or three. Then they go to to, uh, maybe Clearwater. So it it can take, you know, four or five years. So 18, 22, 23 years old by the time they get up here. What's the difference in the league? Just the pitching, the speed of the, the pitching? Yeah, the experience level, it, and it's you know what the speed of the pitching is really not the difference, okay. but it's the command and control that the pitchers have. So sometimes oh, these pitchers yeah. will come in, and they may have two really good pitches. So let's say if they have a really good fastball and they've got a good slider, but they can only throw that good slider one out of ten times yeah. when they first start. By the time they get to you know next level up. They're hitting that slider more consistently, and now they've mixed in a changeup too. You know, so they try to learn, maybe progress with a pitch each year, and being able to command that fastball. So it doesn't matter how hard you throw it to these guys; if it's right down the middle, even the, the young guys in eight ball, they're going to hit it. Yeah. So it's a matter of being able to put it in the right spots, and that's what they have to learn. So those more experienced. So that's why guys like Mickey Moore and D- Mickey uh, Moniak, you know, when they're playing in an older league, you're playing against pitchers that are that have already developed that command yeah. and it's a little tougher for young young players yeah so so rob we're gonna have to let you go in a minute i, I want to bring you back um i'm not going to ask you for any predictions but just a real exciting time and can't wait for opening day jerry wants to to introduce a little segment we do every so week. we have a segment with Gerald. as we as we know he's very knowledgeable of uh, a lot of sports things it's called uh, colton's champion so you pick the year and he's going to tell you the champion out of all the four major sports 
and NCAA college basketball too. Oh, so I get to pick the year. You pick, pick the, the year. year. Any year. Well, 2020. <laughs> That's an easy one. <laughs> we were just talking about that one. 2020? Yeah, it was like it's, it's a good time for all the Philly teams he to be back to go, in yeah, championship. Yeah, it'll be Sixers, Flyers, Eagles, and Philly. <laughs> all right. So, all right. That's pretty safe, Gerald. <laughs> That's a good one, Rob. <laughs> Stop me on that one. No, go ahead. Pick any year. He's World. been 99% so far, so okay, he's been getting so the break. Going back. All right, let's try 1987. In, I don't think we've had 87 yet. So 87 so. in baseball was the Minnesota Twins breaking through, right? <laughs> You're right. Sure I was right. Um, I got I got to tick them through one by one. In hockey, '87 was the Edmonton Oilers. In basketball, it was the Los Angeles Lakers. In college basketball, it was the Indiana Hoosiers. And what are we? What am I left with? I haven't done football yet. See, football we always talk about. It's it's the Super Bowl twenty two was the eighty seven season. So the Washington Redskins. Yeah, you got it. I got him. That's excellent. Whatever. He's got them, <laughs> but, he's got them all right. But I'll be more per- impressed you predict the ones in the future. That, that's why twenty twenty <laughs> was a tough one. And if you go to the White House to shake the president's hand, that was. Ronald Reagan. Anyway, Rob Holiday, the director of amateur scouting for the Philadelphia Phillies, the 1919 World Series champions. God, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> anyway, thanks for joining us. Thanks for giving us a nice little preview of what to expect from the Phillies and, and this exciting season we're about to kick off. Thanks, Rob. Thank you guys we're for We're bringing you me. back, though, and, and certainly come join us here at SOMO anytime. You got it. Thank you very much, guys. We actually already ate here and liked it a lot, Josh. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> so, so thanks again. and really appreciate it. And we've got just a few minutes left, Ja. And I want there's some stuff I would still want to touch on yeah. from earlier. Um, and let's go back to, because I, I don't want to send these guys off into retirement or, or their next step in their lives without a few accolades. And that's Fran Dumphy finished his career at Temple, made it to the NCAA, lost in the playing game, but had a great career at Penn and Temple, just one of the great guys. And Phil Martelli on the same day that Fran finished up and lost, um, was ousted after 24 years at St. Joe's, 10 more right. years as an assistant coach. A lot of people criticize St. Joseph's for getting rid of him. And it's funny how college sports work. Sometimes there's over-loyalty. And they brought in a new athletic director a year ago. She didn't have a real history with Fran or with okay. Phil Martelli, who was loved there, and got rid of him. They've had a few tough years at, at St. Joe's. But just a goodbye to two great guys in the city. But by the same token, you know, if you don't win, it's, it's big. This is big money. This is this, There's a lot of pressure on. And even in college athletics, if you don't win, you're not going to last. Especially here in the city and in NCAA basketball with the you know the Big Five and, and the colleges that we have here. And you see what Villanova does. Yeah, exactly. A- after losing guys every year, but uh, but yeah, anytime you're in the in the business that long is um, you know we're in a production business. You got to win. So when you, when you, when you, the winning fades a little bit. And uh, those dollars and stop coming in and people start chiming about losing all the time. Sometimes changes need to be made. One of my guys is actually the trainer of the women's basketball team over there, Brian Bigham, and he went to Bloomsburg. He was one of my mentors. He played uh, tackle for us and graduated exercise science. So, uh, so yeah, man, hopefully, you know, they, they get it turned back around and, uh, you know, get back to winning. Well, Temple has already picked their successor to Fran Dunphy. That was named in advance. And it's former Temple Al, former Philadelphia 76er. And, and Aaron McKee. Aaron that, McKee yeah. and, and also somebody participating in the public league, a really, a real good Philadelphia guy. And I think he'll do great down on Broad Street and yeah. wish him the best. So that's going to be a great transition. St. Joe's hasn't picked yet. Um, 
I wouldn't be shocked if Jermir Nelson, a former star there, if he's interested, maybe wound up there and, and they too bring That would be interesting. Forward. But we, we will see. He doesn't have the basketball experience. That was going to say, Aaron. Aaron has coached for the Sixers. He's coached for Temple. and. Yep. Um, we will see, but as to what happens, I'm just glad to see Aaron taking over. Temple's in St. Joe's a bounce back, though. Strong, strong program. It's, you know, the hard part is, and it's in football even more so, it is hard to compete when you're in a smaller conference. It's yeah. just hard. And and they're, they've been loyal to their conference in the 10, but it's, it's really hard for them. And they have a small little arena on campus, and they just don't deal with the same athletic budgets and opportunities that some of these other schools do. By the same token, basketball, you only need one, two real good players. Phil Martelli did a nice job recruiting that historically. It was a little bit down lately. I, I want to always touch on, Ja, the things, women's notes in sports. And, and we focus mainly on the four major professional sports in this country, especially on football, basketball, and baseball and a little bit on hockey. Uh, but there's some good women's notes always going on. One this week was that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and head, new head coach Bruce Arians hired the first two female assistant coaches. Yeah. Um, I don't know who the heck they are. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, they don't have a great history to, to go on. But he hired two, two female assistant coaches. So times they are changing. Yeah, for sure. Um, I play with, with uh, female refs in the game. And, and uh, we've had... Uh, we had an assistant in New Orleans. Uh, her name was Jen, and, and she worked with our um, with our training staff and, and our guys in the weight room. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it's good. It's good to see, you know, um, ladies that are highly educated in the realm of football because it's just such a a, 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 a man dominated sport that you don't really think that these ladies can hold their own weight, but they're showing that they can. Just like, you know, off of the movie, uh, Remember the Titans, you know, the little girl, you know, watching a film. A lot of these ladies grow up watching football with their older brother or father. So they're, they're very knowledgeable about the game, and, and they shock you sometimes. So well, we got female officials. Yeah. Females and training staff and all sorts of things, and it's it's good to see. This. Now they don't come to the locker room. I tell you, I don't, one story. I don't know about <laughs> that. A story. Yeah, yeah, go so ahead. we got a reporter. We got a reporter, and she's like, "I don't do the locker room. Can you tell so and so to come out here so I give an interview?" I said, "Listen, you're not going to last in this league if you don't go to the locker room as a reporter." But uh, but yeah, the, the ones that work in the building, they they don't really go in the locker room. They stay clear of the locker room. But the reporters, they come in there. But well, they have to, and that goes. Exactly. Way, they, I mean, there was a lawsuit back in the '70s, and it actually emanated from baseball and uh, the New York Yankees and the New York Times suing for their reporter going. So we, we're over 40 I don't know years. why that story just popped in my head, but it it's, did. It's, it's a funny story, and you're right. I mean, it's just part of the business, and yep. they got to they go deal with that. Um, ja, we talked a little bit at the end of last week's show. We didn't have time to develop it, and I, I want some of your take and experience. We had the incident go on in Utah a couple weeks back where Russell Westbrook was heckled and potentially even racially yeah. by a fan and the Utah Jazz investigated and took the action of banning the fan and his wife for life and <laughs> it was it was and it seemed justified because mm -hmm. the, the the comments went on a racial note and sex note and just offensive way beyond proper decorum but a lot of fans feel that that's okay that that's their right they buy a ticket they can say whatever they want to right, that, that right. they would never in their life say to outside the context right. of, of him being on the court or on the field or security around to protect them so you as a football player and, and people don't know how you know at a lot of these stadiums you're, you're backed right up against the crowd Some you can of hear what they the say older ones, yeah. any experience 
experiences you had or any take you have with regard uh, to heckling? I mean, yeah, you hear it all the time. You talk about your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, everybody. Um, you know, St. Louis, their old stadium was was old, and they were, like, right up against you. I remember Shockey getting into it with a, sta- with a fan and, you know, just – I always just never really turned around. I just let them talk and try to, you know, go out there and put work on the field and put up points and then come back and, you know, just tell them to look at the scoreboard. But uh, it happens. I think it happens more than we realize. But now with the social media and how information just gets to you so quickly now, you're starting to see it, you know, that much faster, like in an instant. So um, I think there are going to be more actions like the owner took at Utah. And that's just the way it's going to have to be fixed. Um, you know, back in the day before the social media, you saw when those guys for the Pacers and Ron Artest ran up in the stands, and you, you saw they were just throwing haymakers at people that just wore other teams' jerseys. So those are the things you kind of want to not get into when you're dealing with fans and athletes. But uh, sometimes, you know, as athletes, they expect us just to turn the other cheek and, and, and be that true professional. And sometimes you, you get fed up with it, and, and some guys take it. Uh, into their own hands and in their different ways. So until you see more discipline from, or not more discipline, or you know, just more punishment from the uh, from the management and the owner side, like the Utah Jazz owner did, um, you know, people will st- continue to do that. But once they realize that there's going to be consequences for it, then I think it'll slow down. Pretty chilling. There's been some some good heckle or responses over the years that I've heard, but I don't want to knock anybody's job, but I remember a guy named Ron Heller for the Eagles, and I was with the earshot on a silent when he's getting ripped apart, and he screams his guy. The guy's just, Heller, you suck, and all these normal yeah. things. And he turns, he goes, hey, but I'm a little busy, but I can talk to you tomorrow off time when you come by and pick up my garbage. Uh, <laughs> no, no knock against garbage, and, man. But, and there's but, some good ones, right? Right? Sometimes there it's are. fun. There are. I, you know, I don't come to your job when you're sweeping floors. But and sometimes it's fun. <laughs> but the ones you're able to have fun with are good. Those are, those, are, those are good when you have fun with the fans and you can go back and forth in, in a nice manner. But sometimes it's not as fun. And we still have Rob Holiday sitting here with us. And uh, one of the guys that they just signed or picked up in this offseason, Andrew McCutcheon, former MVP. But I, I heard he had a great response to one a few years back where the guy's just all over him. And he turns and he goes, I'm going to pray for you. And he turned and he sat down. He, he took a knee and actually made the act of praying for the guy because the guy was just all over him saying offensive, horrible probably stuff. probably said some nasty what stuff. A, like. What a great response that was. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that shut that guy up. And I don't know if he really prayed, but regardless, he, he, sure, he sure looked like he was. And um, anyway, we are coming down the home stretch and a few things to note before we do so. Um, Conor McGregor, a very, very interesting figure. Yes. And, John, I remember last week I, I brought up the 10 most famous athletes worldwide. And Conor McGregor is on that list. In the top yes, 10. he is. Yeah. So a, a UFC guy who crossed over and fought Floyd May- Mayweather in boxing. International star. And he's an Irish star, and he's got a lot of personality. Not always good personality, but a lot of personality. And a story has broken two things related to him and it's always a little bizarre with him one is he tweeted out yesterday that he's retiring now these UFC guys don't really last long per se <laughs> but that he's retiring and at the same time a story broke out that he is under investigation for a rape charge in mm-hmm. Dublin that goes back to December and in the Irish press they're not allowed to identify the, the alleged perpetrator well, until there's actual charges okay. so he hasn't been charged yet but you know listen we may have seen the end of Conor McGregor as a UFC fighter. Uh, I don't know, man. I mean, that league is just 
it's such a barbaric league, and, and Dana White and those guys have cleaned it up a little bit, but they've had stars come back from, from things. So it's it's all about the draw. If people are willing to pay, well, then they'll right. let them play. With, with <laughs> so, Jones has tested positive. Exactly. And, and it's he's it's all champ. about the draw. And Connor being that first star in that in that uh, UFC fight competition to have two belts, you know, he was the first one to do that. So, I mean, if, if his draw is big enough, I, I see him letting him back in. Well, we have a UFC event going on Saturday. at the Wells Fargo right here in, in Philadelphia there. at 3.30 on Saturday. Right opposite your baseball game, by the way. Uh, park early. <laughs> but anyway, I know you I know you do it. You've got your parking lot. But it, it's, it's, a, it's been a while since it's been in Philadelphia. Yes. It's pretty entertaining. <clears throat> yeah, a lot of fighting coming back here with the, at the Met and, you know, the Wells Fargo now, the UFC fighting. So... Uh, all right, last note before we go, and that is Robert Kraft, through his attorneys today, uh, <laughs> entered a not guilty plea, which he had done previously, waived his appearance at a hearing for Thursday, and requested a jury. Now, th- this whole legal affair, whatever term should be appropriate to use, circulating and that he's been involved in since being accused <clears throat> and charged in relation to, basically, he was charged with soliciting prostitution but to a massage parlor in West Palm Beach Florida and the the inference that there was sex trafficking going on but nobody got charged with sex trafficking and the local authorities down there just charged a lot of people at least 28 um, with the same things they charged Robert Kraft and offered them all a diversionary program wherein they could plead not guilty as long as they admitted that they would be found guilty if they went to trial and they would get the charges wiped off and they also had to pay something like a $5,000 fine, which would be over 100000 collectively, and do 100 hours of education on the horrors of, of sex trafficking. And so far, uh, Robert Kraft isn't biting at that. His attorney said that, they, that those kind of penalties are unduly harsh. By the same token, they have to treat everybody the same. They can't give him disparate treatment just right. because he's Robert Kraft and right. the, the only known name so far that has surfaced. But um, this thing continues to take different weird turns. It's not over yet, of course, and, <laughs> and and we'll see where it goes. The NFL is not taking action on Robert Kraft until this thing's all no. done. Although at some point they're going to let pro- that process play out, and they and they have to. Although sometimes they take swifter action on its players. Uh, sometimes, oh, just about all the times. But <laughs> when you're dealing with one of the uh, the five uh, top families in the NFL, they're going to let that play out. And uh, yeah, man, I, until until the verdict is out, I, I think that. We just gotta wait for it. I don't think there's gonna be too much he say, she say about it. Um, so, but my, I'm just like, don't you want to dismiss the jury if possible? Isn't, isn't it's it? an interesting thing because there's allegedly the law enforcement people have said there's a tape, and if you go to a jury, that tape gets out there. So I don't think he really wants to get that tape. I don't know exactly yeah, so the strategy. He? I don't know exactly the strategy that his lawyers are employing right now. It may be a delay tactic. My, <laughs> that makes my no gut sense. Is, well, my gut <laughs> is this thing never goes to trial. There's no tape. And I'm the charge you, there's no tape. Well, if there's no tape and, and law enforcement has lied about it, well, then they will get the charges thrown out alone on that fact. No tape. There may the be a tape, but... will have but no credibility whatsoever. No um, but regardless, the charges from a criminal standpoint aren't that serious anyhow. And Robert Kraft, I, I seriously doubt, will ever spend a day in jail no. under any circumstance. Anyhow, um, our first show here at SOMO, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Really appreciate Rob Holiday stopping by. Can't wait to watch this Philly season. And hopefully all you guys listening out there, come join us. 5.30s on Tuesdays at SOMO in South Philadelphia at 13th and Packer. So, Ja, um, 
We will see you next week. We'll have the Phillies underway. Yeah. Home stretch of the Sixers. NCAA, which we didn't even get to touch on the tournament, but Zion lives another week. We'll see if he if Barely, but. Come next weekend. <laughs> Good stuff, though. Real entertaining. Even though I think NBA still blows away NCAA, even though this tournament's a great thing. Anyway, on behalf of my partner. Peace. Jerry Evans. I'm your host, Gerald Colton. Thanks for listening. Courts adjourned.